This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, Alex Pearson here with you on point. On our podcast today, what about rapid testing and this announcement that is so great? Apparently, the Trudeau government's got this rapid testing. The little caveat, the fine print, it's not been approved by Health Canada. So in other words, it's a completely empty, hollow process. We talked to Michelle Rempel about that. We'll also talk to a, a kindergarten teacher from France who lost his job because he scares the children. Why? Well, it could be because every inch of his body's tattooed, including his eyeballs. But it was a fascinating discussion, and it was impossible not to look at. We'll talk about that and more. Very busy podcast today, so let's get started. Today, I am announcing that the government of Canada has signed a new agreement with Abbott Rapid Diagnostics for up to 7.9 million rapid point-of-care tests for COVID-19. This is a nasal swab-based point-of-care test with results in approximately 15 minutes. The good news, Trudeau government signs a deal for 7.9 million rapid test kits. The bad news, we will likely have a pipeline approved and built before we ever see it. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, September 29th. There we go, end of month, almost here. And, uh, you know, it's one of those days where I thought, oh, cool, finally, some good news. Because I was going to write about rapid testing, you know, this morning. I thought, well, you know, what, what's the big dominant issue? What's important? What's my focus? And I thought, oh, well, there's an announcement coming out. So maybe that's just going to quash the whole thing. But, oh, God, no, 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 no. Because once you read the fine print of this amazing announcement, it becomes very, very clear that the Trudeau government is in full-on damage control trying to make it look like they're acting on something that really should have happened months ago. But while they all, those in charge are getting all excited about this big news, right now this is nothing more than a headline. Because signing a deal to buy test kits does not actually mean it gets into our hands because, oh yeah, this hasn't been approved by Health Canada. So that means we're talking weeks months, a pipeline or two. Because as you know, Health Canada doesn't know the meaning of rapid. It's taken them months to approve tests now being used in other countries. So if they have to go by you know, that criteria or we go by that criteria, we may actually have a vaccine before we get the rapid testing. But I'll make this guarantee, we will not have it in time for the peak of this second wave in mid-October. And so what we got today is nothing more than a bunch of COVID kabuki theater, where you get this announcement that sounds like, hey, we're in charge. We're taking charge. But it's a lie. Because I went back once again, and I watched the COVID update on Friday, and it was long and a little bit boring. But on Friday, 
a very clearly frustrated premier forward told us that when it comes to rapid testing, the Trudeau government wouldn't or couldn't give a timeline for when it would be approved. And that same day, when Justin Trudeau showed up for the COVID-19 update, he was asked, where is the approval process? And Trudeau would only commit to an if. We are not uh, weighing in politically, obviously, on uh, the process that the scientists are going through in terms of evaluating those. But we are making sure that in parallel, if and when uh, rapid tests are approved, we're able to get them uh, distributed rapidly across the country. If, if and when. So that was Friday. But then Dr. Tam, she almost jumped right into the you know, prime minister's lap. And she added, you know, that when it comes to rapid testing approval, you know, she checked with Health Canada. And where things stand with Health Canada is this. What I've noted, though, is that there was really little data submitted to the regulator. And you need basic, like basic minimal clinical information. And so we're also looking at how do we help in, uh, you know, the assessment of those, um, those types of tests. So Friday was, what, four days ago. And on Friday, according to the chief medical officer of health in this country, they barely, barely had any data on rapid testing. So we bought 8 million rapid tests. And for now, they're as useless as the other six rapid testing kits now in front of Health Canada. And for Health Canada to approve rapid testing, they say it has to be 80% accurate. Okay, so there you go. Look, the government in four days seems to be awfully excited about something that four days ago they had barely any data on. So make no mistake on this announcement. The devil is in the details. And we are lagging way behind several other countries that already have rapid testing in hospitals, in schools, in homes. So you ask me, there is absolutely no excuse. None. Not this far in. Because in, in March, Justin Trudeau told us that rapid testing was his government's key priority. Because we had been told to beat COVID-19 the testing's crucial. We saw what Taiwan did. There's a reason Taiwan only had seven deaths and didn't lose everything. Because they shut down the borders, they did rapid testing, and they masked up. And here we are, seven months in, we flip-flopped on almost everything we've been told, and we don't have rapid testing. We are actually failing to get all testing in control let alone rapid testing. I'm still waiting for my kid's results. I know he's got croup, because now I've got whatever he's got. But I don't have his COVID test that'll allow him going back to school. And I don't expect to get it probably like everyone else for a couple more days. So we're delayed. And we don't have great tracing. We know there are still gaping holes in that. So in, in, the, in the key things that are going to control this virus, we are failing at. And frankly, ask me, there's no excuse for any level of government. And then you add insult to this charade because the WHO, don't forget the WHO, which this government hangs off its every word, 
Even it's approved a rapid test. We got the announcement last night. But of course, why would that matter to us? We follow their every direction. We give them hundreds of millions of dollars. But do you think we've bought any of this supply? Oh, God, no. Because why would we? We just give them money. We don't get anything returned for it. So while Germany, France, Switzerland, the UK, and several African nations, they all have orders for millions of this rapid test that was uh, made by South Korea. They're good. And where are we on this deal? Why we're sidelined, again, by the same kind of foot dragging that we have seen from the federal government since the day that this thing got underway, which, you know, was back in December when Patty Haidu, the health minister, who was a graphic designer before that, was informed about this killer pandemic coming our way. We better be ready for it. But of course, at that point, the talking points were, it's low risk and we're prepared. And they haven't gotten it right since. So am I excited about the rapid testing? No. No because it's not been approved. Now, if it does get approved overnight, then I guess we know that the Trudeau government did get involved. But for now, they're not getting involved in pushing Health Canada to make any big decisions. So here we are. We will talk about this. Michelle Rempel is going to join us at seven o'clock. She's the uh, health critic. She's got plenty to say about this. But again, it's crucial. If we are going to get ahead of this thing, if we're ever going to have a life outside of this thing and get back to normal, we have to have rapid testing. And we don't have that right now. And it's just, you know, you think two weeks from now when it's uh, sub-zero temperatures and you're waiting outside to get a test that takes a really long time to get. Maybe your kid's being dragged along when they're not feeling great. It's not going to be nearly as uncomfortable as it is now. It's going to be absolutely horrifying. It's going to be awful. So we got a busy show. We will talk about all of this because it's important. We're also going to talk to uh, club owner Charles Caputh. I mean, no one owns more clubs in Toronto in this country than Charles Caputh. And uh, we talk about the you know, adding of restrictions. And uh, even he admits, I mean, if there is a second shutdown or more restrictions, he, he may not even survive this. And then I'm going to talk about something that I just don't understand why we're even talking about it. But why in God's name is the Ontario legislature putting up a Chinese flag tomorrow in its honor? Why? Does anyone, and I know it's not in the premier's office, it's not his decision, but does anyone in government ever think outside the box? Are they capable of that? Do they all have to be told what to do and what not to do? Or can't they just do what the right thing is, which is don't honor, don't honor China. They don't deserve it given their treatment of this country, of the Michaels, of the jailing of a million Muslim minorities and their general god-awfulness. And here we're going to raise a flag for them tomorrow. <sighs> Makes you wonder. I uh, had a great conversation with the Prime Minister uh, yesterday about the rapid test and uh, I'm very grateful that they were listening. Now Abbott's coming out with a rapid test today. Isn't, isn't that amazing? The announcement, I'm, I'm very grateful again to the Deputy Prime Minister and the Prime Minister for listening to our, our concerns. Well, they may have listened, but they certainly are talking out of their rear ends on this thing. And uh, frankly, we're being led astray by those in charge. And on the surface and in all the headlines you're going to hear, you know, that Canada has bought millions of these rapid tests. But as I always say, the devil's in the details. Because the rapid test that Abbott uh, Laboratories 
um, has introduced and now we've now bought, it's not approved by Health Canada. And of course, to get that approval, and as the doctor said earlier, it could take weeks and now it's too late. But it's certainly not going to be approved in time for the second wave. And frankly, it is just absolutely not acceptable seven months into this thing. Because we know, and we've been told, to beat COVID, you've got to test, and a lot of tests. And we were also told back in March that this was a priority for the Trudeau government. So I don't even know why this is a conversation. We shouldn't be having it. Michelle Rempel-Garner is the Shadow Minister of Health. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, I mean, on, on the surface, this sounds also very exciting, uh, but uh, approval and procurement are very, very different thing. And the message most are going to take away is like, good, we have rapid testing. But, um, you know, the bottom line is, in your experience with the way Health Canada works, what are we talking as far as their approval period? And if they've been told to expedite these things, what's the timeline here? Yeah, well, first of all, kind of proud because like this was not on the political radar anywhere two weeks ago and you know my party uh, my party leader and myself we've been working hard on this issue because there's been exactly to your point there's been no movement um what this boils down to i think you know the trudeau government has tried to make this overly technical what this boils down to is when is the mom who's listening to the show tonight going to be able to look at her kid who came home with a runny nose and a sore throat and say I have a quick, easy option. And we don't, like, I mean, I was on a panel with the government tonight. They don't have an answer to that. So, um, you know, right off the front end of your show there, when you're talking about how um, other countries have already approved the exact same test and it's already deployed, it's like, where's ours? And so we need to keep the heat on the government, and it needs to be about getting these tests into the hands of Canadians, into workplaces, into schools, into seniors' homes, and uh, we don't have a date on that. So that's my job, is to keep their feet to the fire so that we actually have this deployed. And we're, we're not close to that yet. Well, I'm one of those moms uh, who spent their morning running around trying to get their child a, a COVID test, uh, you know, for a runny nose. And I'm not alone. There are many, many parents, as you know, that are lining up because their child has a, a runny nose and, and they can't go to school. Um, and the only option they have is to stand out in a lineup, which in about two weeks is going to be very hard to do because it's going to be very, very cold. Um, but I just talked to Dr. Jacobs and, and he said, I, I wish I could get excited, but it is now too late. So even if we do get approval on this, which... You know, the height of this thing is supposed to be in two weeks. We're supposed to, you know, mid-October. We won't have them in time. And even if we had them now, it would be simply too late. No, and, and you know, just on this point today, Trudeau's health minister was asked, uh, you know, well, what about these at-home tests? When are those, like, what stage are that at? And she said, well, we haven't had any companies apply to have approval. Like, it was like this sort of smug answer. And think about how arrogant that is. Countries around the world are competing for these tests to get, like, you know, there's only a finite number of them being manufactured. Um, everybody wants them. And, and somehow she thinks that they're going to just come to us. Like, we should be out there fighting for Canadians to get access to this technology. And instead, they've really, you know, it really hasn't been until we started putting political pressure on them. Uh, that They've started to, to say, like, oh, well, maybe we should do something. But again, it's when it, when are you going to have access to it, Alice? Like, when are you going to be able to to not have to worry about the concern that you just raised? And that's the answer we don't have. Um, and I, you know, people woke up in Montreal today under more lockdown measures. Patio season is over. We're going into the winter months. And people, I'm worried about people's compliance. And 
it's it's crazy. We need we need these we needed these five months ago, not uh, you know at some future date to be determined. But there are as many as uh, half a dozen, as I understood from listening to the press conference, and I certainly re-listened to the COVID update on Friday where Mr. Trudeau appeared beside Dr. Tam. And there are at least half a dozen of these tests waiting in front of um, Health Canada for approval. Um, That hasn't been done. And when you listen back to the uh, press conference on Friday, uh, Mr. Trudeau said if uh, and when uh, these tests come available, you know, we're not going to get involved. But Dr. Tam jumped in very quickly and said there was barely any data available uh, to them, uh, to Health Canada, about these rapid tests. And I, I cannot comprehend how at this point in the game they don't have the data that other countries have had for months. I, it's, you know, it's such a bureaucratic answer, right? It's such a just removed from reality answer this is where you need leadership. You know, the, the prime minister, the health minister should have said, look, yeah, of course we want this reviewed fulsomely. We don't want to cut corners, but let's get this done. Like light some fires, urgency, like don't let bureaucrats come out and tell the Canadian public, well, you know, we might get around to doing it at some point in time. And like, don't expect that people are going to come to us. I mean, very bluntly, Canada is a small market compared to other big markets around the world. The prime minister should realize this and not like have some humility. And he should have been out there like a, you know, underdog cage fighter trying to get us in line and punch above our weight. Instead, it's like, oh, you know, they should be coming to us. And to not figure out these systems, to not push back to um, against the inertia and say, this is this is not peacetime. We we need a we need a solution. It it, it lets you down. It lets you know. It, it lets the mum in my writing who told me about this. It lets my colleague down whose wife was told eight days, eight days that she had to isolate before she got test results down. And um, we, they have to give Canadians a solid date on when they're going to be delivering these uh, these devices. And it has to be like now, not, you know, March next year. Well, the Prime Minister made it clear on Friday they will not politically get involved with the process and no Canadians, Canadians don't want them to get involved and meddle in things like SNC or or pressure an Attorney General, those kinds of things. But I do think Canadians have an expectation of government to make sure that when we're in a pandemic or a health crisis, that when you say the process is being expedited, that that is actually uh, being done. And I don't get the sense that there's an urgency. Yeah, but, and, and you know what? The, the, Trudeau is so good at trying to deflect from his responsibility by saying, wow, you know, you can't politicize this. Well, nobody is saying that we shouldn't do a review. That should be done. Where the political involvement is, is saying, make it happen quickly. There's, like, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the fact that you can't do something well in a short period of time. Work harder. Work harder. Millions of other Canadians work harder to get something done on time, on budget, to meet a demand. And this isn't like your typical business project. This is Canadians' lives. And, um, you know, it's just such junk. And um, I'm proud. You know, there's so many, there's women at the front of this, right? It's moms that are pushing this. And um, I just want to encourage everybody who's been standing up for for something better to to keep doing that and to say thank you. And we're going to get this done. 
Well, you know, a lot of mothers will have time while they're waiting in line for hours to call their, their MP and put pressure on them. But I want to just, before I let you go, I mean, the WHO approved rapid testing Monday. Um, and that that would be great news because hundreds of millions of tests are going to be available to countries. And then you read who is on the list to get them. I mean, the UK has ordered them. France, Germany has bought millions. You've got African nations that have got them. I mean, the WHO has been uh, the source of, of getting us out of this thing. The government has put all their eggs into the WHO basket. And yet we're not even included on this list. How, how can that be? It's crazy. You know, I saw that story yesterday in question period and. I just got up right away and I said, how is this possible? Um, and, and they didn't have an answer, right? It's just, it shows that they are out of control. Um, we can't go into the winter months not having a plan and not having the, um, the ability to, to, to do these tests. Um, so again, the key question for Trudeau and his health ministers, when are they deployed? When are we going to have them? When is the senior's home that, you know, somebody's grandparent is in or father is in? When are they going to have access to that? Why are we shutting down senior's homes when we could be testing? Why are we shutting down schools when we could be testing? And that's what I'm going to make them answer. All right. All right. Well, you might want to follow up on the vaccine front, too, because if they botched this as badly, I'm not so sure about the vaccine, uh, you know, procurement that they have done as well. Um, I appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Take care. Have a good evening. That is Michelle Rempel-Garner. Uh, she is the, they used to call them health critics, but now they are shadow minister of health. I, I still like health critic. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Great to have you here on this Tuesday. And um, it's quite a sight to see, you know, every inch of his body is inked. That includes his tongue, his body, and even the whites of his eyes. And now this teacher from France says it's costing his job teaching children under the age of six because... He scared one child, not all the children, but a child who ended up getting nightmares. And without question, on first glance, Sylvain Hélène then gets a second glance and a third glance, because frankly, there's so much to look at, and his body art is so in intricate and detailed that you can't help but take it all in. And once you get over the shock, it's quite something to see, but he loves what he does, and tattooing is his passion. And it's also a way, he says, to teach the kids to accept those who are different. He joins us now. Sylvain Helene uh, is in France, and uh, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. So I take it you are uh, used to this kind of attention, correct? Well, it's been uh, three or four years that I use my body as a, as a way of earning money to uh, pay for my tattoos. So I do a lot of acting works. So, uh, um, I'm, I'm a comedian, I'm an actor, and I'm an, uh, an anchor during Tattoo Con, for example. Okay. So, yeah. But you're, you're love, you love to teach. Is that, is that your, I mean, tattooing's one passion, but is teaching young children also a passion? Indeed. It's been 12 years that I'm a teacher. And before being a teacher, I was a martial arts teacher. And even before that, I used to uh, uh, be a nurse as well for uh, young children uh, in my neighborhood. So yeah, uh, being around, be, having children around me and being a teacher and teach them how to live basically is a, is a patient. 
Okay, and so you're making headlines here all over the world, including in Toronto. And that's because, um, you know, your art, your passion, uh, you know, seems to be now a distraction for some of the kids. And I wonder, I mean, your art didn't happen overnight. It would take an awful long time to get that much tattooing on your body. What changed over time that made all of a sudden this so shocking? Uh, I've started getting tattooed at 27 and a half, actually, and I'm 35, so it, it didn't take that much. But yeah, uh, the the thing that I it's been three years that I re, that I receive letters that my hierarchy receive letters like maybe two or three a year. Uh, it's never directly to me. It's always to the hierarchy. It's always very brave. Mm. Uh, but what changed the most is when I tattooed my eyes, obviously, uh, a year and a half ago. Okay, and it's hard not to look at your eyes. I look at your eyes, and my eyes kind of want to water. I, I gotta think that's painful. Uh, it's it's more stressful than painful because it's just like torture. Uh, you've got one guy holding you down and uh, keeping your eye open, and the other one is uh, coming with his needle. So it's just like in Clockwork Orange, the movie, and you cannot move, and they just um, um, approach these uh, pointy things to your eyes, and you, it's just the worst day of your life indeed and it's kind of controversial because it's not an old art form this is a fairly new art form um yeah. and so do they not freeze your eyes do they not like give you an anesthetic they, they cannot do that because if you move you just lose your eye so you you can see and witness everything you can feel everything you can feel the needle touching your eye and you can feel the the the, the sclera getting pierced so yeah, and it's and you're right saying that it's only a ten years old uh, procedure, and actually it's illegal in France. I had to go to Switzerland to uh, to do it, and to pay a lot of money, and we don't know what might happen to us because it's quite recent. Whereas getting tattooed is a seven thousand years old procedure, so we know that tattoos are okay unless you are doing an allergy, obviously. But uh, eye tattoos are quite recent. It's illegal. It's expensive. So don't do it at home. I don't regret anything because uh, it was my passion and I really, really want to do it, but uh, I would advise not to do it. Right. And so my next question would be any regrets and you have none. Um, but nonetheless, it, it does. I mean, people will say, sure, he has every right to express himself in any way he wants, but it can come with consequences. You knew that going in. Uh, not at all. I, was, I, I admit I was naive. Because I saw that in 2020, in France, uh, which is one of the most uh, developed countries in the world, uh, like the first democracy and so on, I, 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 I never thought it would be a, um, a problem in my work. Uh, I, I was thinking that I could do both my lives together, uh, my passion for tattoo and my passion for teaching, and that won't be an issue. But uh, obviously I was wrong. And so now that this is kind of news all over the world, do you, uh, and obviously it's permanent, you can't undo this thing, can you still continue to teach children? My hierarchy uh, does not want me to teach kindergarten anymore. They only want, they only allow me to teach from 6 to 11 now. So uh, today I was at school actually with uh, eight years old pupils. Uh, that was great. I'm exhausted as every day, but uh, I'm with you uh, just after. So it's it's uh, it's cool to be able to teach and to be able to do your job, even if I can't. I can only do half of my job because uh, I can't teach from two to five because of uh, my bosses. 
Okay. And so what do your kids say to you? I mean, you know, that's still a very young age. It's a very impressionable age. I would think, you know, I I don't know about France. I mean, they're a lot more open than, uh, let's say, Canada. But I have to think that the kids take, I mean, it's impressionable. Either they want to copy you or they think, gee, like, what is that? What's the the takeaway for them? Well, I'm a cover teacher. It's been 12 years that that I'm a teacher and three years that I do a small covering job. For example, I I can cover a teacher for a day or a week or three weeks or a month. Uh, But it's been 12 years. So everybody knows me in my borough and I already teach uh, the the big brothers, the big sisters. They have seen me on TVs. They have seen me on movies or or in interviews. Uh, But... Yeah, I, I guess that it can be surprising. And actually, I, I know that it's shocked, that it can shock anybody from children to grandfather uh, with and, and parents and anybody. But it's only uh, for a couple of minutes. After two minutes, when they hear me talk, when they hear me, uh, you should hear me talk in French. I'm a way better French speaker than I am an English one. When they you're okay in English. Plus, it's not a it's not a Quebec dialect, so we like the Parisian sound. So you're good. <laughs> So, but but um, yeah, it's it's only lasts for a couple of minutes, and then I speak to them, and then uh, they start working, and then everybody is fine. The only complaint I I have is from parents of pupils I did not teach, from pupils that I've seen me on the playground area, for example. And so ultimately, I mean, you do this um, as your passion, but it's also, you know, something that has come into your career. But is there a takeaway for, for, you know, from this for you? What do you mean? You know, is there a learning curve here? You say, you know, you do this and you know you're going to get a reaction. Um, But again, you know, is it a a lesson of acceptance as far as you're concerned? Okay. Okay. I get it. Um, When I got tattooed, it was really selfish. It was because I liked that, because I loved that. It was my passion, and I, I did that for myself. I only covered my face and neck and hands when everything else uh, were already covered. So I, I never thought that it would uh, interfere uh, with my job, and I never thought that that would uh, that that would that that would be uh, like a, a symbol uh, of tolerance, and uh, and that I would carry the voice of uh, different people, but. Because of all of the, the the stories around me, I became this symbol. And well, if it can help uh, France and Europe and the world, I'm really happy to help. And fortunately, my pupils will, will be less racist, less homophobic, more tolerant. They won't make fun of disabled people, and they will more accept uh, the others, and they will more judge people uh, by their work and by that, but by what they have inside instead of by the way they look. So hopefully I will help uh, making them better person when they will be uh, adults. And hopefully I can help some other people in the same situation I am, like uh, being discriminated, being uh, uh, put away. So I I take this role with with pride. Well, we have come a long way. I think I'm a lot older than you, but there was a time when you couldn't, uh, if you're a guy, you couldn't have long hair. You had to hide that. No way could you get away with that, even having one tattoo show. And uh, you have completely broken the mold. But before I let you go, is there anything else left to tattoo or are you completely covered? Uh, my first layer is done. So I'm doing the first. second one. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm passionate, so I don't want to stop. So I've done the first layer in three and a half. And I was wondering what to do next. So I'm I'm 
I keep getting tattooed. No, I have done my second layer and then I'll do a third one, a fourth one, a fifth one and so on. And I will end up full, fully black, not because I want to be black, but because uh, it's easier to cover uh, by darker tones. So I will end up full black around 80, I guess. Well, I got to be honest, I can't stop staring at you and uh, it's fascinating and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. So thank you so much for sharing your time. We'll uh, continue to watch your journey and see where it takes you. Thank you very much. Stay safe in these uh, unsafe times. I wish you the best. And you. As well. Thank you. That is Sylvain Elaine joining us uh, all the way from France today. And boy, oh boy, you know, hey, don't judge a book by its cover. That's what they teach us, don't they? That, that, uh, that's a decades long saying. Don't, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Coming up, the world marking a grim milestone crossing the one million mark in deaths with COVID-19. It might be shocking in modern day, but when you put it in historical context, how does it stack up to other pandemics? We will speak with a historian whose specialty is studying pandemics, epidemics, black plagues, all those things. We'll do that next. Stay with us here, Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio. You know, we're hearing a whole lot of calls for rolling back to restrictions we saw in stage two. And a lot of those calls, of course, come from the medical community, which, you know, they can say that. But if you're in the business community, it's got to it's got to be a feeling that you're very much under attack. I mean, it's easy to say shut things down. But if you own a business, especially one that involves making money off of bringing people together, then the restrictions have literally destroyed your livelihood or are doing so. And the first shutdown we know was devastating enough. And a second one will be game over for a whole lot of businesses. But given, of course, we don't have data that shows restaurants and bars are the main culprit of spread. I mean, is it really fair to punish those who are really actually trying to play by the rules? Let us bring in Charles Kabuth. You've gotten to know on the show. He is CEO of Inc. Entertainment and owns probably, I think, most of the nightclubs in this country. How are you, Charles? I'm actually doing great. Thank you. Well, that is good to hear because a lot of people aren't. I mean, you are one of the bigger owners. And so, you know, you have different ways of getting through this. But how have these restrictions, um, you know, been affecting your businesses? Because you've got huge places and people are there to to gather. And, you know, we're going in and seeing cases go up. How how challenging has it been? And and what does it mean if more more, uh, restrictions come in for you? Oh, it's been extremely challenging. And, uh, especially for us who have been adhering to the rules and regulations of the Toronto, uh, you know, health. Um, So we've adjusted, we've pivoted, we've reconfigured the restaurants, our hours of operations, our patios. So I think for most of us, we had a fairly decent summer. We were lucky enough to have good weather. Um, However, now... With the new restrictions, I think we're going to be in much more hot water than before. Um, I think it's unfair right now that because of some bad apples in the city not adhering to the rules and regulations that everybody's being punished. And I think that possibly what the city is doing might make things worse by pushing people into private residences and and spaces where uh you know there's no control in the restaurants we are controlling our staff we are controlling people walking through the restaurant to have uh, masks to be protected 
we are adhering to all the rules for dis- uh, social distancing in the restaurants and the bars. Mm-hmm. But now by um, shutting down the hours, for example, as of last weekend to 11 o'clock, and now cutting back on the number of people to 75, I think this is good and bad at the same time. It's walking a fine line in my opinion. Right. And so we, you know, as the cases go day to day and we start kind of going into the second wave and it gets worse and worse, there's going to be a whole lot more pressure put on the premier and start shutting things down. I don't get the sense that they want to do a complete shutdown, but, you know, politics being what they are, they will probably target. And uh, I think it's easy to go after the restaurants and the bars because they're seen as the main culprit. But can you survive and can businesses like yours survive uh, any more restrictions? Because it's one thing to do this in the summer, but we're now doing this in, we're going into, you know, zero, minus 20 temperatures. It's not like the springtime shutdown. No, quite the opposite. Now we're going into the cold weather and uh, outdoor seating is going to be negligible, if any at all, whatsoever. Uh, we're trying to work with a tent, but you still have to keep the walls off. So I'm not sure how much that's going to help. I think the new restrictions are going to be very damaging to our industry 100%. And I do hope that uh, Doug Ford and the medical doctors do reconsider uh, based on numbers as well. Like yesterday, the numbers were over 700. Today, they're hovering around 500, a little over mm-hmm. 500. Yeah. So my biggest concern always in any business is panic. And I, I know they're working with um, more than just a, a feeling or, you know, they, they're working on numbers. But I think panic will send us uh, down, uh, you know, a road that we'll never be able to recuperate from. I think uh, the city panicking... Um, it's not great. I do have a lot of respect for everybody working hard to keep us safe, and, I, and, and I'm all for it. But uh, shutting down our numbers drastically, like now down to 75 people, most of my restaurants are 200-plus people. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden I have a restaurant that's 70% yeah. empty. Yeah, and, and the costs of your food and your staff end up, uh, well, you know, the, the numbers go backwards. Staff, yeah. Pretty well is the same. So you have two less waiters on the floor, three less waiters. That's not, your insurance is the same. Your cleaning is the same. Your right. rent is the same. Your hydro is the same. Your kitchen staff is the same. You might need one less person. But overall, your senior staff, your chef, your GM, that cost remains the same. You cannot bring that cost down. Mm-hmm. So we are going to have, you know, other things to worry about, whether it's financial, mental, uh, all of the above, you know, yeah. it, it hasn't been a great time for anybody. 
No, indeed it hasn't. And the numbers have to have context. I mean, in hindsight, now we get that 700 number and then you look at it and a third of those were false positives. And then the, part of the, the numbers were uh, a backlog in cases. So it's not really 700 yesterday. It's probably more in line with what we're seeing today, which is 500. Having said that, do you get the sense that those in charge are cherry picking the winners and losers because, you know, they're more concerned about, you know, keeping people just calm and, and making it look like they're being proactive? I think some of it is political. Uh, again, I, I'm very thankful for everybody being as concerned. But some of it is political, and everybody's watching their back to make sure if things go wrong, they're not, you know, no one's pointing fingers at them. But right. sometimes we do have to stick our neck out. You, I don't think you can forever just be a politician and, and try and make everybody happy. I think a lot of people are trying to do just that and keep everybody happy. Um, but right now, we're going to get hurt badly. I mean, they're, uh, they're uh, now up to 40,000 tests a day. So, of course, the numbers have gone up a bit. Mm -hmm. We all know the virus is not as strong as before. The amount of people in hospitals is so minimal in comparison to before. It's so minimal. You know, this uh, virus has muted and, and, and uh, it's not doing what it was in March, in January, in February. It's much weaker. I know quite a few people who got sick and four or five days later were back on their feet. Again, I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not telling the city what to do, but we are getting hurt badly. Layoffs are definitely, I laid off 13 managers last night. Jeez. Oh, that's terrible. 13, 13 managers. We had a dinner for them and laid off 13 managers. And these are people that have families and mortgages mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, rely on the job and rely on us to keep them going. And it was very sad. Again, here I am laying people off again three months after I brought them back to work. Just before I let you go, you know, I spoke with a business, a very successful business that's been around for a couple of decades. You know, the reason they got through the first hit was because of their clientele and because they've built themselves into such a strong business. But I said, what happens if you get shut down for a second time? And she said, I will not survive. I can't do this twice. Are you in the same position? Are you like most saying, look, once it was bad enough, twice, it's not survivable? Twice is not survivable. I know for a fact twice is not survivable. We have many, many locations, so some of them will, you know, maybe take the hit. But uh, I know I've, I've let go of two locations already with the first um, shutdown. With the second shutdown, I might have to close a few more. And where does that put us, you know? Uh, yeah. uh, we, we have to look at our average and we have to look and see how many people are going into the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, this um, and according to the medical doctors here in, in Ontario they started yesterday by saying that corona is here to stay just like the flu it's never going to disappear so we have to learn to live with it so how much longer are we going to be you know shutting down and opening and closing and, and uh, people are really being affected and of course health comes first but I think at some point we have to make a decision as to what's more serious. And, of course, death 
and being hospitalized is more serious than anything else. But then again, we got to look at the amount of people being tested and what's the percentage. Yeah. Well, there's the health deaths and the health hit, and then there's the business hit and the business deaths, and they both come with consequences. Charles, I'll talk with you uh, as we head into this thing. I'll wish you and your staff the uh, very best of luck, and um, and I'm sorry to hear that, uh, you know. No worries. But I Thank appreciate you. your time on this. Thank we'll you. do our share. Thank you. That is, you know, it's so easy to say shut things down, but as Charles says, every time you say shut things down, you're basically telling someone they're out of a job. And that person, you know, that he lets go today, that, that means their family doesn't have money coming in. And, and it really, it, it, these are their faces behind these job losses. And I think that's what people have to remember when you say the word, just shut it down. It's not that easy, unless you're in the public service. That is your podcast today. You, of course, can join us live Monday to Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.